You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. The first two years of the pandemic spurred an unprecedented increase in domestic migration and home buying, as remote work broadened relocation possibilities and households used elevated savings to buy second homes. Aggressive Fed tightening increased mortgage rates in early 2022, incentivizing people with fixed-rate mortgages to stay put, which then lowered home sales while keeping house prices high. On today's episode, we talk with Mark Palem, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist with Fannie Mae, about how the housing market has adjusted to these pandemic disruptions, what the future looks like for housing affordability, and whether the industry can stay resilient through the rapidly changing macroeconomic environment. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Mark Palem, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist with Fannie Mae. But first, a quick market update. The January CPI and PPI accelerated much quicker than expected last week, reinforcing investors' worries of economic overheating suggested by the January employment report. The 0.4% increase in the core CPI was the highest since May of last year and far from consistent with the Fed's 2% year-on-year inflation target. We think that unusually disruptive weather last month, along with normal seasonal adjustment issues in January, distorted the data and are not representative of an underlying trend. The larger-than-expected decline in retail spending last month is also more likely an anomaly than an inflection point in consumer spending. Nonetheless, Treasury sold off on the hot inflation data, with yields rising 10 to 15 basis points the last two weeks and establishing new 2024 highs. Market-implied inflation expectations over the next two years have risen almost 20 basis points so far in February, and Fed funds futures are now suggesting rate cut expectations close to the Fed's last dot plot. While we think the Fed's median projection for three rate cuts this year is a good baseline, we think the market is too quick to revise the inflation narrative. Once January weirdness fades out of inflation calculations, we think the improvement that we saw in the second half of last year will remain intact and the bond market will rally accordingly. The Fed released the minutes from its January 31st meeting this week, reinforcing Powell's press conference message that the FOMC would be looking for more sustained inflation improvement before it would feel comfortable cutting rates, and that they would have a more in-depth discussion regarding balance sheet management at the March meeting. The Fed's next meeting, including the release of a new SEP, will be on March 20th. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Mark Palem. Our guest today is Mark Palem, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist with Fannie Mae. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Our topic today is the housing market. So I want to start the conversation by looking at the first two or so years of the pandemic. As I see it, there were two big stories in the housing market. The first is that there was this rapid increase in domestic migration. So remote workers could go places with warmer weather, more space, lower taxes, all of that. The second big story was that households had more money saved up. So people who used to spend a lot of income on travel or dining out had more money, and many of them decided to buy second homes. Now, both of those stories drove prices higher because the quick change in demand interacted with what is a pretty inflexible housing supply. So against that backdrop, Mark, how much has the housing market adjusted to those abrupt changes right now in February 2024? 
I think you've really done a great job outlining the initial impacts of the pandemic, the 2021 period and even the 2022 period. When, as you note, you had the, oh my heavens, I'm a renter, I can go anywhere, look, I can afford to buy a house or I'm gonna retire soon. So why don't I move to Florida or North Carolina from New Jersey and buy my retirement home and I'll work remotely for a couple of years. So all those trends were going on. And in small markets like Boise, for example, you saw a big impact, right? If you have in migration, as you noted in your question, the supply of housing is quite inelastic relative to people's ability to suddenly pick up and move and go somewhere new, which the pandemic really accentuated. If you look at both government data through 2022, you've seen a continuation of some of these trends. So the, the major two trends on each coast of people moving out of the largest cities in California and moving out of California into some of the near-end markets and all the way to Texas, you've seen the continuation of that. It has slowed some, but that has continued. You had the same thing happening out of the Northeast on the East Coast with people moving out of New York tri-state area down to the Carolinas and Florida. Again, you're continuing to see that. The trends that are new that you didn't have in 2021 is that you've had a return of a lot of international migration, both uh, legal and, and, and undocumented. That has, you know, means population inflow into gateway cities like LA and New York. The other thing that we see a little bit in our data is that, uh, and you see it in new home sales market, is that what I'll call maybe phase two of the work from home shift in the labor market is that within the larger metros, you're seeing people take advantage of the opportunity to move further out and therefore deal with the affordability challenges that we faced, right? Home prices just increased dramatically in 21 and 22. When mortgage rates went up, that also made affordability that much harder. New home sales became a greater share of the purchases for both first-time home buyers and move-up buyers, partly because of the fact that there were very few homes on the market in terms of existing homes for sale, but also because of their ability to live further out. And further out from the built-up areas is where it's easier to build new homes. That's kind of the outline of, of how things have come together in terms of migration. So I feel like you touched on pretty much every topic that I wanted to address in this conversation. So I'm going to follow up um, on a bit of it in just a second. But uh, I then want to talk about what I call, you know, the next big phase of the housing market during the pandemic, which is when the Fed started to raise interest rates in the spring of 2022. So as I understand it, the rapid hikes meant that people who financed into incredibly low mortgage rates in 2020 and 2021 were now very hesitant to move. So as you said, existing home sales are close to record lows. Housing inventories are incredibly low. How low do you think mortgage rates have to go before we see more turnover in the housing market and inventories start to pick up again? I hate to use the term normalize, but of course, when a lot of those metrics are at pretty close to historic lows, how much lower do mortgage rates need to go before people get out of that mortgage lock? The lock-in was the big discussion item last year, along with affordability, because of what you mentioned, the fact that mortgage rates went from under 3% all the way up to first seven in 2022, and then touched eight in the fall of 2023. So that's a dramatic increase that, of course, affected both lock-in and demand. And you did see that really large decline through the end of last year in existing home sales. In terms of 
uh, the lock-in effect to start. It is real, of course. Um, we see it in our book, you know, with a very high percentage of loans. I, I think it was close to 90% last time I looked with a rate below 6%. But there's more to it than just lock-in in terms of the homes available for sale. We did a survey last year, asked people, do you expect to stay longer in your home than when you first purchased it? And we asked it of people who have a mortgage and those who own a home outright. So nearly 40% of homes are owned outright, mortgage-free. And we found very close percentages of people in each group who said they spent, they planned to stay on their homes longer. So that was kind of a clue that there's more to this than just mortgage rates. For those with a mortgage, when you ask them the top reason, yes, it was the lock-in effect. 20% said that. But quickly below that was, I like the neighborhood. This works well for my work arrangement. I like that particular house I bought. So part of what we've seen is that when you had those large sales years in 2021 and 2022, you kind of borrowed some sales from 23 and 24. So if you look at our forecast, our forecast has mortgage rates coming down to 5.8% at the end of this year and then continuing to decline just very moderately in, in 2025. You do see uh, home sales pick up this year by 3% existing home sales and then really pick up faster by 13% in, in 2025. There isn't a magic number. It's some combination of lower mortgage rates and the passage of time. So people have paid down their mortgage and they get to the life stage where it makes sense for them to move. So I've got a couple um, follow-up questions to this idea of mortgage lock. Um, so the first is, is it possible that aggressive Fed hikes actually gave an inflationary impulse through the housing market? And I'll, I'll walk through this logic because I think it's counterintuitive to what we would think. So higher rates means lower churn and lower inventories. So this increases demand for new homes and residential construction, which keeps residential investment and construction employment high. And so that increases economic activity in this rate sensitive sector that, you know, if, if the Fed's rate hikes were going to slow the economy down to get inflation under control, a rate sensitive sector would be a, a primary target. But if it increases economic activity there, did it actually end up being somewhat inflationary? Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. So um, I'll break that up into two parts, the housing part and then the overall economic part. On the housing part, we did see a, a substantial softening and, and negative residential fixed investments in certain quarters, um, barely positive. So it did have a slowing impact um, in terms of the, the housing market. The housing market did hold up better and new home sales and construction jobs did hold up better than one might have expected. But that was because the existing side was so tight and because unemployment stayed so low. So, you know, we ended the year with unemployment the whole year under 4%. So that meant that demand for multifamily housing, single family rental housing, and just homes in general was much stronger than expected. So. I would kind of decouple the two things. The Fed raised interest rates that had a pretty dramatic effect on existing home sales because of the affordability issue. But the release of new homes available for sale was even slower than the demand destruction from higher mortgage rates, which meant that as the economy was still doing well and employment was still strong, that spilled into the new home side. But it wasn't because of the higher mortgage rates that the new home site did well. It was because of the dynamics of the existing home market and the overall economy. 
So that gets to the second part and mention about the economy. The economy has been less interest rate sensitive than a lot of people might have thought, right? Us included, we had a recession that we put in April 2022 into our forecast for the second half of 23, and that recession didn't happen. And we now obviously don't have that for this year. We don't have it for, as the economy is doing well, consumer spending is doing well. So it does appear that the economy has been less sensitive to the rate rises, and that's a whole other topic. Now, when it comes to mortgage refinancing, um, it, it probably doesn't take uh, too complicated of an explanation to uh, kind of point people to the idea that if you got a really low mortgage rate in 2020 and 2021, you have no interest in refinancing right now. And so we've seen just mortgage refinancing plummet over the last couple of years. As of this morning, mortgage rates, uh, the average on a 30-year fixed rate, according to Bankrate, um, are just over 7.1%. This is down from a peak in October uh, of 8.1%, but it's still high. How low do you think mortgage rates have to go in order for refinancing to get back to a more normal level? Or kind of like a, a couple questions ago, is it just um, gradually lower in the passage of time that will come rather than any magic threshold? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you think about refis, if in 2022, we had our estimate was $730 billion in refi originations. In our forecast, we get back to that level in 2025. As you get to the second half of the year in 2025, you sort of get back to that level. You actually get a little bit above it in some quarters, but still on an annualized rate, obviously. But the point being, uh, it's back to the rate question, is rates come down gradually, that'll help refis. But, you know, the market is really thin just because of the rate effect. I mean, a refi is just a pretty straight economic decision. And yes, there is some cash out refi, but, you know, at current levels, it doesn't make a lot of sense to cash out refi. You got a lot of equity, you're going to get a home equity loan or line of credit. So it's just going to take a while for people have the equity in their homes. So that's not the issue. It's just the rates. A lot of the, the stuff we spend money on is easily tradable across the country. That might be a, a consumer good we can ship quickly um, or a service that people provide over the Internet. But housing is not like that. So it's often characterized as a, a regional, or even local sector. The Fed makes policy for the whole country, of course. But outside of interest rates, housing market dynamics can vary a lot. Do you see any importantly divergent trends across the country right now, or is there more or less a unifying narrative for the U.S. housing market? There is a general narrative of, of affordability, both for renters and owners, remains a key concern, and that's across the country, right, particularly for renters. You do see variation because, as you know, like uh, uh, particularly housing is just inherently a local product um, and construction is local and, and you have cycles. I think the multifamily market probably illustrates it best for the moment, where you saw really strong demand in the Southeast and a lot of construction to meet that demand. And now there's been a little bit of overbuilding. So if you look at places, oh, I should say, you know, that the number of units that can get delivered and need to be absorbed is causing people to offer concessions on the rent, which is kind of typical for the multifamily cycle. So you're seeing a little softness in terms of asking rents in places like Austin or other places in the Southeast that have boomed, uh, including parts of Florida. So I think that's the variation that you see. The job growth remains pretty strong across the country. Um, so it really has more to do with whether construction got out a little bit ahead of itself or not. 
Something that I think you touched on earlier, um, as I understood it, was um, how the ability to work remotely more has allowed people to go further into suburban or exurban areas uh, where the affordability is greater and then still have um, some sort of access to these job hubs, to the to the urban cores. Um, now, in a recent podcast episode, we interviewed um, a demographer who talked about generational trends um, of preferences for cities versus suburbs um, based on how people are retiring, how the older generations may or may not be moving across the country if they're uh, passing down their homes to their kids. Um, do you see any demographic trends, and, and maybe affordability is a big part of this, but any demographic trends that point to um, city versus suburbs or home ownership versus renting? In the survey work we've done and in the demographics, you know, looking at government statistics on demographics and home ownership, et cetera, you do see that affordability is a particularly uh, strong concern for renters. You can just see it most simply by the number of households that they cost burdened. And in surveys, that has moved to the highest thing that they care about is affordability. It's not as much the neighborhood or other things. You also see that through, if you compare to 2005, for example, then the sort of middle, I don't know if I'd call them middle age, but people in their 40s and 50s, and some in my 50s, their home ownership rate is down from where it was in 2005. And so you see the impact, the echoes of both in that, the echoes of both the housing crisis and then affordability issues. And you also see that the age of first time home buyers has moved up according to NAR to 36. So it's taking longer for people to move their way through the housing ladder to first become a home buyer and then maybe buy that second home, do the move up. The oldest cohorts are the ones who are showing the least change in terms of the demographic housing profile. The strong home ownership rates, the highest home ownership rates, people over 65, a desire to stay in their homes. And I think that's one place when you think of demographics where changes in how healthcare is being delivered is helping people to age in place. The pandemic sort of opened up telemedicine the growth of things like Uber, et cetera, making it easier to, to stay in a suburban home, perhaps after you when you want to drive. So I could see a number of those issues kind of leading people to stay in their homes longer than they might otherwise had in prior generations. So I think those are the basic trends, the tension between affordability and, and uh, people wanting to age in place. When it comes to affordability for um, those those younger generations who are looking to be first-time homebuyers, um, a lot of forces go into housing affordability. But from where I stand, um, there is a, a really primary uh, explanation coming from um, a lack of housing supply. So um, a combination of, uh, let's say, city zoning restrictions um, and, and in other things, keeping um, housing artificially low uh, compared to a kind of pure market environment. We're not building enough housing in the places where people want to live, where the jobs are, the superstar metropolitan areas. Do you see any pending legislation that you think would uh, improve housing affordability? I know California has has tried to introduce legislation um, to, to increase the housing supply, and, and it's a very difficult political process. But even outside of increasing housing supply, what sort of hopes or forces can there be for prospective first-time homebuyers uh, when it comes to affordability? I agree with you that the major issue for housing affordability, uh, there's the cyclical factors like interest rates and employment, but the secular trend 
of the percent of GDP that we're spending on single family construction, just gradually declining from the 70s, a little bit into the 80s, and then really dropping off over the last two decades, has meant that we've underbuilt relative to our population. And unlike a lot of countries in Western Europe or Japan, that are also, you know, mature industrial, post-industrial societies with high incomes, our population is still growing. So we really do need to continue to build rather than building less. And so that's a fundamental driver. When you talk to builders and you read the economic literature on it, yes, zoning, building codes, land use, all those factors, the infrastructure that you need to support development, all of those factors are there. And many of those are really state and local issues. And so it's actually been, for me, as a housing economist, it's been great to see the level of debate across states and across metros, both uh, Republican and Democrat states, like strongholds in either, where you've had really vigorous debates about, hey, we need more development. Yes, we also care about the environment. Yes, we also care about traffic, but we do need more development. You know, at least as we look at, and the data are not easy to come by, but we do see signs, for example, that in Minneapolis, an early adopter, uh, the Twin Cities, by right development at a greater density, that that is having effect. You are seeing more units coming online. In California, as you referenced, we've seen that. And what I've heard in California is you're getting a combination of things that are both really useful. One is that illegal units are being regularized. So illegal in the sense that, you know, someone's renting out their basement or the apartment above their garage, but it wasn't, hadn't been inspected for the building code, blah, blah, blah. All of that is sort of coming out of the shadows, which is great because it will improve the quality of those units over time. And you are seeing more construction. It does take time. I sort of feel like <laughs> when you're in housing, you have to constantly tell people, we know these are problems, but it's housing. It takes time. I've seen uh, really interesting analyses looking at once you go, if a city goes to say, okay, by right, if you're zoned one dwelling per unit, you know, one unit on this land, you're allowed to build two. It doesn't mean you instantly tear everything down and put duplexes in. You got to wait for the natural cycle of when the home's kind of old and needs a lot of repair. Well, then it makes sense to turn it into a duplex. But we are seeing it across the country, and it's great to see. So tying a couple things that we've talked about earlier, um, that housing markets can be very hyper-local, um, but also they are interacting with a bigger picture cycle, the macro economy. Um, do you see that house prices are generally going to go up then for the foreseeable future um, because the housing supply takes a while to increase? We still have a strong economy. Uh, interest rates are still uh, pretty high. Is the trajectory for house prices upward um, or is it still they go up until they don't just like 2007? I'll start with the baseline of our forecast. We're forecasting that this year nationally in 2024, home prices will go up 3.2%. And then we have that slowing down to basically flat in 2025. Now that's of course a national number and that's a forecast. And as you point out rightly, there's a lot of local variation. Housing prices are very local. You get very much driven by what's happening to migration into a region and of course by employment employment trends drive migration and they also affect how much people can afford to pay in an area. So if you get a sector specific recession, like the oil industry takes a hit, if oil prices plummet, then you see cities or regions that where oil is a big employer, home prices are absolutely going to suffer there. So 
I don't think we've eliminated both the national cycle and home prices or regional cycles, both those tied around the economy, what's happening to job growth. I want to close um, with questions about uh, the kind of near-term trajectory of the housing market. So memories of the financial crisis just over 15 years ago, I think, are certainly still fresh in a lot of people's minds. Do you see any housing sector vulnerabilities right now that worry you? Um, and do you think that any of them will have cascading effects that spread to the broader economy? Essentially, will they be systemic issues or will they be um, contained? I think we'll start by saying the differences between now and 2006, 2008. Homeowners have a lot more equity, which is really helpful for uh, weathering the next recession whenever that occurs. The second thing is uh, most mortgages now a fixed rate rather than adjustable rate, which means that when the Fed adjusts interest rates up, they don't feel the impact as much. It helps insulate homeowners from the impact of monetary policy. So both of those things add more stability to the housing, the mortgage side of the housing equation. Are there things to be worried about? Yes, I worry about the level of unaffordability, particularly for renters, which means that if you get a downturn in the economy, rents cannot keep growing the way they have been. And depending on the particular metro you're in, if you're already a little bit oversupplied in terms of units, then you're really going to feel that impact in that particular metro. And household formation is kind of one of the shock absorbers, right? So you get a recession, people don't move out as quickly from their parents' house, or they stay with a roommate that they might not think is great, but it's nice to be able to split the rent. So you'll see household formation take a dip and that affects demand for multifamily and those of single family. So the cycles can be long and we've had a really long cycle of home price improvement since 2012 and a really long cycle in the multifamily area. And you know, reasonable thing to expect is at some point those cycles turn and fundamentals do assert themselves. Mark Palin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That was Mark Palin, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist with Fannie Mae. I thought Mark said a lot of interesting things in that conversation, but two stick out to me in particular. The first is that we'll take more than just lower mortgage rates to get the housing market back to historically normal rates of churn in refinancing. People are choosing to stay put not only because they locked in low rates early on in the pandemic, they like their jobs, neighborhoods, and communities, especially the big portion of homeowners who are insulated from rate increases by not having a mortgage at all. It will take the passage of time for many of these homeowners to decide to relocate and sell their houses. The second key takeaway is that the high levels of equity that homeowners have right now make a systemic crisis like we saw almost 20 years ago much less likely. The big data release next week will be the January PCE report, which is expected to show a similarly sizable increase in inflation as the January CPI and PPI. Unusual weather and seasonal adjustment issues will distort the true underlying trend, but markets will stay on their toes for any data suggesting inflation isn't under control. The following week, the February employment report will be the last big labor market data the Fed will see before its March 20th meeting. A number of Fed officials are scheduled to speak publicly the next couple of weeks before the Fed's pre-meeting silent period kicks off. Chair Powell will testify to Congress on March 6th and 7th. 
Federal policymakers may use the opportunity to blame Powell for various economic issues, but we expect he will focus on telling the public that the Fed is committed to achieving its dual mandate of restoring price stability and maintaining maximum employment. Treasury auctions for the two-year, five-year, and seven-year notes will take place early next week, the first for each after the most recent quarterly refunding. Recent auctions for the three-year, 10-year, and 30-year treasuries were strong, and next week's coupon auctions could drive market momentum before more important data releases later in the week. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Compernal, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions or comments. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.